This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I understand you're having a, a series. This is the first of a series of three talks on the transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty. And it's important to note right away that uh, these talks are a bit out of order. And we had to do that because of you know scheduling uh, the different speakers. Normally, at least in the Thomistic tradition, when you talk about the transcendentals, we'd start with truth and then move to goodness and then move to beauty. And that's for very important reasons. Uh, there's a certain logic that uh, that the Thomist tradition sees in the relation of these three transcendentals or of the three transcendentals and to move uh, in discussion from them, beginning with truth and moving to goodness and finally to beauty. But we'll begin for this series uh, with the good. But before we begin with the good, I should say a brief word just on the relation of truth and goodness, how it is that truth and goodness are related to each other. As you'll hear in the talk tomorrow, I think, about truth, truth is in the intellect. It's a quality of the conception that the thinker has interiorly in his intellect of a thing existing outside of the intellect. Truth represents the adequacy of the interior concept to the exterior reality. And this is what we mean when we talk about one having a true idea of trees or a true idea of dogs, a true idea of man, a true idea of God. You know, how do we know that someone has a true idea of something? Well, you begin to ask them, you know, do you have a true idea about trees? Well, tell me about trees. Well, they grow outside, they have green leaves, they feed on sunlight and water, they have bark, which is normally brown. So all of these things together, when we Going to formulate propositions that express our ideas, we can see whether or not our idea of the thing is in fact adequated, as the tradition says. That's the technical term used by Aristotle and Aquinas, adequated to, to, to the reality that's being grasped. By contrast, if truth is in the intellect, the good is not in the intellect, but in things themselves. It's not our ideas about things that may be good, although if they are adequate, yeah, we can talk about the goodness of our, of our ideas, but it's things themselves that are good. When we talk about the good, that's what we mean. We mean that this is some quality existing in the thing itself that we come to know and grasp through the senses. Thus, we speak of good trees, good dogs, good men, the good God. So while truth is in the intellect, the good is in things, the good being in things stirs not the intellect, but appetite, as we'll see. That's what distinguishes truth and goodness. The good is what the will, is what appetite desires. So by his intellect, the human creature draws things into himself that he may know them. And by his will, he goes out to things that he may love them. So I need to talk about the transcendentals, truth and goodness, and then finally beauty is a reflection really on this dynamic, you know, how it is that the human creature draws things into himself that he may know them. And then once he knows them by his will, he goes out to the things that are known that he may love uh, and enjoy them. So right away, it's important to recognize that the discussion of the good is something objective that describes things as they are in themselves and not simply something in us or something as it appears to us. The good is not ultimately subjective, although it does have effects in us that are subjective, as we'll see. But in itself, when we talk about the good, the good is something objective. It's in the object. It exists in things. It's a quality of things as they're known and loved. So thus recognizing that the good is in things, the tradition makes three points about the good. And we'll examine each of these points. First, the good is what all things desire, and as much as they desire their perfection. Secondly, the good has the note of final cause. 
And lastly, the good is the first of causes and diffusive of itself. Now, again, we'll take a look at each of those. The good is what all things desire, and as much as they desire their perfection, the good has the note of final cause, and the good is the first of causes and diffusive of itself. And that itself, when you make those three points, that's a nice summary of really the whole of the Aristotelian Thomistic tradition as to what the good is. Uh, if you're looking for a quick definition or a quick summary as to what the good is, uh, you just kind of identify each of these three points. Uh, uh, that's a, a, a nice way of, of conveying what we mean when we talk about the good. So first, let's look at the first of these points. The good is what all things desire, and as much as they desire their own perfection. Aristotle makes this point in the first book of the Ethics. Aquinas comments on this in various places throughout his corpus, but especially in the Summa Theologiae, the Prima Pars, question five. There's a metaphysical principle, both that Aristotle and Aquinas highlight here, and it's this, the what we call the convertibility of being and goodness. And that's a technical kind of title that just conveys this simple truth. To be is the same as to be good. To be is the same as to be good. The phrase to be and the phrase to be good both point to the same reality. They convey the same truth. But according to two aspects. Perfection of the act of being in itself. That's what the phrase to be points to. And then secondly, perfection of the act of being as something desirable. That's what it means to be good. The phrase to be good says nothing other than to be, except to add that to be is something as a perfection is desirable. To be is to be good. There are different reasons for that. The basic reason is that to be, to be in act, is itself a perfection. And as a perfection, to be is to be good. And because it's good, it's something desirable. To be is in itself something desirable, better to be than not to be. And therefore, to be is to be good. So that's the metaphysical principle here that underlies everything that Aristotle on the one hand and Aquinas coming later will you know, base their, their teaching on the good, on this principle, the convertibility of being and goodness. So that's where they start when they start talking about, in order to talk about the good. Now we have to make a distinction right away when Aquinas does this. First of all, in God, we recognize that the convertibility of being and goodness is complete and exhaustive. In God, to be simply is to be good, simply. The divine act of being is divinely and exhaustively good. In God, simply to be is to be good perfectly. So to be and to be good in God speak absolutely about the same thing. To be is to be good, absolutely speaking, simply speaking. In creatures, however, the convertibility of being and goodness is qualified. It exists. To be is to be good for the creature. But the creaturely act of being, our act of being, every creature's act of being, is simply to be, is to be good only relatively. For creatures, simply to be is to be good in such a way that its goodness can be further perfected according to the potencies of the creature's nature. For the creature to be is always, in some sense, the capacity to be better, to grow in goodness. And that's what distinguishes us from God. In God, there is no potency for growth. In God, there is no capacity for improvement, because in him, to be simply is to be good simply. That's not the case for us or for every created, created thing that shares in God's being. For us, our act of being is always an act that can be uh, 
augmented, which is to say our own goodness can always be uh, improved upon as the potencies of our nature are actualized. For example, I mean, take, take, take an example from tennis. I mean, both Serena Williams and I can, can serve uh, a tennis ball. However, there is a vast difference between how Serena Williams <laughs> serves a tennis ball and how I do. Each has each serve is an act, but there's no question that there's more of the potencies of serving a tennis ball that's perfected in Serena Williams than 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 in me. Similarly, let's take a golf swing. You know, both Tiger Woods and I can swing a club uh, and hit a ball down the fairway. But there's no question that Tiger Woods has perfected and brought to actualization more of the potencies that are involved in swinging a club and driving a ball down the fairway than I. These two pros perfect more of the potencies in these actions than I do. And therefore, we can say that Serena Williams serve, Tiger Woods drive are better than my own. Again, each of us can produce these acts. These acts exist in each of us, but they're better. There's more goodness, more perfection in the acts of these pros than in mine. So we can look at that in different ways and apply that to, to all realities, including ourselves. It is good that all human beings exist. But better are those human beings who are prudent and just, courageous and temperate, in whom the cardinal virtues, for example, have brought to perfection the potencies that exist within human nature. Whenever we talk about the good, we also necessarily talk about desire. Because desire is what the good elicits. Desire arises in creatures as the response of appetite to the goods that promise to augment that creature's being. Desire is what's stirred in the creature when he comes into contact with the goods that perfect or actualize his potencies. It's the goodness of the sun, for example, that causes plants to move toward it. It's the bowl of water that attracts the thirsty dog. It's the city that draws the man in search of learning and friendship. And those creatures, and this is all creatures, that desire, as we said earlier, their own perfection, they desire the good the goods that lead and provide for their perfection. So to summarize this point, to draw all this together, we can say that though simple in being, created things are not simply good. Simply being creatures remain in potency regarding, in regard to their simple and perfect goodness, which is not inherited from, but rather added to the simple act of existence. Now, whatever is in potency naturally strives to actualize its potency. Hence, all creatures in potency to their simple and perfect goodness desire and strive for the ends, the operations, that the goods that provide this added perfection. And this is a dynamic that's written into the very fabric of creation. I mean, this, this describes every created thing whether it's a simple just chunk of matter like a rock or to the most complex creature, we human beings, and even extending into the angelic realm. I mean, this also describes angels. And speaking of angels and men for the created personal agent, human beings and angels, this metaphysical dynamic unfolds in a particular way, namely by intelligence and by volition by intellect and will, because angels and men, simple in being, those who simply act, uh, exist, do not naturally possess goodness simply and perfectly. They have to grow towards 
their simple and perfect goodness or happiness. They are prompted by natural inclination and intelligent desire to seek their simple goodness. Thus is the moral life of angels and men born. But within the same metaphysical reality that they share with all created beings, the good toward which inanimate things move through the motion of another and toward which plants and animals move according to their proper instincts, angels and men move toward freely by knowledge and by love. And so at all levels of created being, the movement of things toward their good rests on the metaphysical distinction between a thing's relative goodness and its simple goodness. Born with goodness in potency, these things move over the course of their life and the course of their existence towards their simple or perfect goodness. This is simply the distinction that Aquinas has led to just when he explains the convertibility of being and goodness, as we've seen. So in striving for their simple and perfect goodness, created things desire the goods that perfect them, the goods that augment their being. So again, the good is in things. And agents lacking their complete goodness desire the good things that provide their complete goodness. So we'll just leave it there for that first note that the good is what all things desire in as much as they desire their own perfection. Let's move to the second point. The good has the note of final cause. Here, we describe how it is that the good actualizes potency, how the good moves something from imperfection to perfection. In other words, this second point describes what kind of cause the good is. Is it a material cause, an efficient cause, a formal cause, or a final cause? You recognize that these are the four causes that Aristotle identifies that exist in four all things. As an object that elicits desire and appetite, we've already described the good as this. The good is that which elicits desire and appetite and is the end to which creatures with appetite move. The good represents, for the Aristotelian Thomistic tradition, a final cause. Not material, not efficient, not formal, but final. As a final cause, the good is that to which or for which something acts. Therefore, the causality that the good exercises is final causality. The good causes in the way that an end elicits desire. Now, although we can speak about the good exercising formal and efficient causality, and you can find this all over the, even the ancient tradition, but also extending all the way up through today. And I would say this is something that still trips us up when we talk about the good or how it is that the good moves us. Sometimes we can have more in our, uh, in our minds ideas of formal and efficient causality. That's how the, the good operates on us. But Aquinas goes to great lengths to correct the classical tradition and by extension, you know, our own tradition, uh, more contemporary tradition uh, on this point. When you look closely at Aquinas' doctrine of the good, he, he's really careful to, to highlight how it is that although it may appear to us when we describe how it is that the good operates in our lives, that it can appear to operate according to formal or efficient causality, but actually that the good operates in itself as a final cause. This is how the good exercises its self-diffusion for Aquinas, not primarily by making things, which is an operation of efficient causality, nor by modeling things, which is a way in which formal causality exercises itself. Although the good can do these things, but in itself, by definition, 
what the good does, how it exercises its causality, how it moves things is by stirring appetite and sparking desire. And we can talk more about that maybe in the question and answer period, maybe try to kind of flesh out that idea. But before that, let's look at the third point to be made about the good. The good is the first of causes and effusive of itself. Aristotle makes a big point about this, Aquinas too, following him, that as a final cause, the good is in fact the first of causes. And thus it's the cause of causes, they call it. Now, two points of interest uh, can be noted here that highlight the primacy of goodness in the realm of cause, that how we can understand the good as the cause of causes. The first way is to just note that the other three causes, efficient causality, material causality, formal causality, these three causes all work themselves for an end. Agents work for a goal. This is the movement of efficient causality. Matter is moved to form. This is the movement of material causality. Form is inclined to imitate its cause. This is the movement of formal causality. You can So you can see in the movement associated with each of these other causes, there's movement towards an end, towards a good. You know, so thus the end, the good, represents that to which the other causes move, this final causality. Aristotle, Aquinas note, represents the cause of causes. It's primary among the four causes. Secondly, the second way in which uh, we can understand the good as the first of causes is that as a cause, the good extends to more things than being. This is an interesting point. Being extends only to what is an act. So only those things that actually exist have being, those things in the act of it, or having or exercising the act of existence participate in being. Goodness, however, can extend to what remains in potency to act. Goodness can make desirable things that don't yet exist. For example, the newly married couple who look forward to having children someday. Their future children, not yet in existence, already have an effect on how the couple lives and on what the couple loves. Even before they're born, children stir desire within the family. And so we can see here that there's something about goodness that's enjoyed. There's a causality that, that, that goodness can exercise even before being. And it's this way in which we describe the good as diffusive of itself. And again, this completes our examination of this third point. The good is the first of causes and diffusive of itself. Here again, Aquinas untangles the good's efficiency from its finality. The way that the good is self-diffusive, it acts and stirs desire in things, is not as an inefficient cause pushing the subject to move or to act. Rather, the good is self-diffusive as an end. It draws the subject to itself through engaging the subject's appetite. Thus, the good diffuses itself not by pushing, but by pulling by standing as that for which something moves or acts, the good draws things to itself without itself acting or moving. So the good is what all things desire and as much as they desire their own perfection, the good has the note of final cause and the good is the first of causes and thus diffusive of itself, exercising its causality not by acting on things as an efficient cause, but drawing things to itself as a final cause. Each, th each of these three points is important to understand the objective nature of every good, according to the descriptions of, of Aristotle and St. Thomas.
So I will, uh, I think we covered everything. So I will stop there uh, and maybe we can use the rest of our time to, to uh, for discussion, be happy to, to answer whatever questions you might have. I mean, that was brilliant, Father, extremely clear. Um, I think I will lead off with a question. So you mentioned something mm -hmm. about creatures growing in goodness and you included mm -hmm. angels in that. Um, mm -hmm. So how does that relate? For example, an angel's intellect allows them to understand things instantly. And, you know, they once they chose the good, uh, when they were created, their, their will was in a way fixed to it. So how are they mm -hmm. growing in goodness uh, when they're, right. They operate differently than we do. Right. Here we have to, I mean, to understand how it is uh, that both angels and men uh, grow uh, in goodness or develop in goodness or, or um, you know, how it is that the, the act of existence in them is distinct from, from their perfect goodness. It's something they, they have to proceed towards. Uh, here we have to understand how it is that, that angels and men live in different kinds of time. I mean, you still have to posit some kind of time, uh, for the angel. I mean, for us, our lifespan is 70 years or 80 for those who are strong, you know, as the, uh, as the Psalm says, uh, but as you said, from our point of view, it's more instantaneous, uh, for the angel. Uh, but even though it is instantaneous for the angel, there's still, we have to say some kind of before and after uh, in the angel in a way that doesn't exist for God, you know? Uh, so there is a before and after uh, in let's say angelic time. Uh, and for however quickly that moves, you know, from our perspective, there's still some kind of actualization uh, of potency that takes place in the angel. Uh, that's akin to how it occurs in us, but for us, you know, it's it's much more drawn out uh, in time, whereas, in a sense, that growth uh, can take place from our, again from our perspective all at once. Um, I don't know that 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 helps. Yeah, it does. So they they incline almost instantaneously in in a way. That's right, and so. I mean, I, not look at this question all that closely. So I'm not sure how your angelologists will, uh, <laughs> will, will, will answer the question. Uh, but just looking at it from, let's say, pure philosophy or pure, pure metaphysics, it's just because they are created beings, however it exists, you know, for the angel, uh, there's going to be actualization of potency. Um, and that's movement, that's change, that's, uh, you know, and, and at the beginning of it, because they are intellectual beings with will, uh, whatever they whatever they experience in potency and however they experience it uh, is going to be accompanied by, by the experience of desire, you know, for, for, for their perfection. Um, and, uh, and just as in the angels, they have a movement from, kind of a natural state to the state of beatitude, you know, which comes to them by way of grace, which is not owed to them by nature. Uh, you know, there's, there's movement and change there too, in the terms of evangelic grace, uh, as there is for us. I mean, we have to move not only over the course of our, our lifespan towards simplifying our own goodness by, by actualizing human potency, uh, but then that's also accompanied by the movement of grace, moving not just toward, moving us not just toward our natural happiness, but to, to supernatural beatitude. That exists for the angels too. And so, um, and again, however that works for the angel and however quickly it works once they 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 come to learn that God offers them like us uh, a supernatural beatitude desire is sparked angelic desire uh, and uh, and which is which is satisfied I mean from our perspective yeah right away uh, in, in one kind of act uh, whereas for us it's refracted you know through many acts. Uh, over time. Thank you. Um, before I go to the next question, just a reminder, if you 
if anyone does want to ask a question, just send it uh, directly to me. Uh, the next question would be, um, what about in heaven? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, so you're saying we incline um, throughout our lives. Uh, what about mm -hmm. after our death? Um, how are we still inclining to the good in heaven? Uh, yes. Um, I would say, I mean, we have to say kind of yes and no, right? It depends uh, <laughs> on what you mean by, by inclining. Uh, I mean, there's a way in which, for example, um, a single man looking for a wife inclines to his, you know, future wife. And so everything that he does, uh, is, you know, towards, uh, finding a wife, <laughs> marrying her, uh, you know, living in, in living a married life with her. Uh, now there's something that changes, right? When he actually finds uh, the woman who's willing to marry him and they actually get married, uh, he's in possession then of that which he has spent so much time seeking. Uh, he now enjoys, uh, but we can still talk about an inclination towards his wife, not as to some future good, but as to some something that's in fact possessed. I mean, the life that he he shares uh, with her. And there's a ever deepening of that life, you know, together. So on the one hand, the good is possessed. On the other hand, it's a good that, that can be uh, kind of forever, our experience of it and our enjoyment of it can be forever deepened. I think that's an analogy we'd want to draw uh, in heaven, uh, insofar as in heaven we enjoy the vision of God face to face, there's not an inclination towards him as to some future yet unpossessed good, but rather it is the fullness of goodness, you know, being possessed by the fullness of goodness, seeing him face to face, every potency on our part, every desire being completely in overwhelmingly satisfied and yet at the same time uh we can still talk about an ever deepening of our enjoyment uh of, of that good uh because that good as infinite can never be exhausted by us so so you have to talk about two things at once complete possession or being completely possessed by the good and yet at the same time uh kind of an ever deeper entrance into that good by way of its enjoyment Thank you, Father, for that. Um, the next question uh, was just asking if there could be a bit more of an explanation about what I think you referred to was relative goodness and simple goodness. Right. Yeah, and those it sometimes can be, uh, it's clearer. I mean, were we all in the same room together, we could sketch this out on a board or something uh, like that. Um, I think uh, in this conversation, simple just means uh, perfect, um, uh, kind of complete. Uh, so in God, his simple existence is his simple goodness. Those two things exist together. Uh, whereas in creatures, it's different. Our simple existence, so just the act of existence, um, which is itself, as we said at the beginning, a kind of perfection. Uh, you know, to be is just that, to be. Uh, now, it can be still to be towards something else, but there's still a, a, a simple perfection about the act of, of existence. But for the creature, that is not the same as his simple or perfect goodness or happiness. Uh, it's relative in that sense, which means it just, we talk about, uh, you know, simply to be is relatively to be good, which means because it's relative, there's room for for growth, room for improvement. Uh, relativity here is is on the way to simplicity uh, or or perfection. So that's that's all we mean by by the the distinction of those those two terms. Uh, so the human creature who simply is as relatively good is is seeking to to perfect uh, his goodness, to 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 capitalize, to actualize all of the potencies of his nature, which you know. Uh, leads to his his greater perfection and and as we know for the human creature uh, his greater happiness. Um, so it's to resolve 
you know, our relative goodness finally into just our simple goodness. Therefore, you know, at the end of the process, simply to be is more, you know, simply to be good. Uh, and that's where we, we the, the, the Imago Dei, especially the human creature imitates, imitates God. So would it be correct to say that in heaven, we simply exist in God? And so there is no, there is no relative goodness. Is well, that we don't want to we don't want to say that because uh, I mean there's a way in which that's true, <laughs> but also a way in which it's it's not true. Uh, so the thing is, is that uh, we don't become annihilated uh, and are simply absorbed uh, into God. Our active existence doesn't become His, uh, and vice versa. Uh, in beatitude, in God, uh, we're still creatures. Uh, we still participate uh, in God's uh, being as something, as beings who are not God. So he draws us into a participation by grace into his life. But as creatures, we become simply happy, simply good, uh, you know, according to all of the potencies of our nature. And in fact, not just simply, but but gratuitously and by grace. I mean, in a we become good in a supernatural way, uh, in, a, in a way that surpasses the, the natural goodness of which we're capable uh, of, of achieving. So, um, yeah, you, it just requires us to, uh, to have a little care and attention there that, yes, God does draw us into his life. You know, we become like him, for we shall see him as he is, as St. John says. Uh, but that doesn't mean we become him. Uh, you know, such that metaphysically we 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 cease being creatures and become God. Uh, that's that's not the case. Uh, I remain who I am. You remain who you are, and in fact, more so. Uh, you know, in in God. Thank you for that, Father. Um, the next two questions, I think, uh, are relatively like they link in my opinion. So I'll read them both mm -hmm. out. So. Okay. Is it possible for an individual to be so devoid of virtue that their very existence can no longer be considered a good? And I think that okay. leads to the next question of, does um, is the existence of the devil himself good? Mm -hmm. um, yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, and St. Thomas is quite clear uh, on that. And it's really, um, I mean, something to be, um, yeah, to be strong on and to be convinced of, uh, to be is to be good, uh, better to be than not to be, uh, even if something is, uh, in an imperfect state, even if it exists in a corrupted state, uh, it's simple act of good, uh, of existence that it is, is still a perfection and therefore good. And in fact, desirable. And Aquinas uh, certainly applies that to us between good and evil men, uh, but it's also applicable, applicable uh, as the second question uh, observes, to, to the angels between uh, good and evil, evil angels. When Aquinas deals with sin uh, throughout the whole of the secunda pars of the, the Summa Theologiae, and when he is really talking about charity and how it is that we love the sinner, uh, he really draws on this distinction. He makes a point that we have to love in the sinner, in fact, what God loves in the sinner, which is that he is, his participation in God's being, you know, uh, which then becomes the root and desire of why it is that we would even engage the sinner to bring them to conversion, because we first love in them what God continues to love in them. Uh, which is what he has given them, the, the gift of life. We hate in them what is opposed to God, which is to say their sin, the corruption of their mind and error, the corruption of the will through the love of evil. Uh, that's what we confront. That's what we hope to correct uh, by, you know, teaching the ignorant and and by 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 showing the one who's bent on evil, you know, what what it is in fact that they should love, what what, what really is good. Uh, that's done by preaching, by good example. Uh, the martyrs do this in, in the perfect way, uh, in, in the highest way. Um, so this understanding about the convertibility of being in goodness, that to be is to be good, 
really lies at the foundation of, of how we understand charity work uh, and why it is that that we not only love the neighbor, but also love love the sinner. We continue to love those who even do us wrong. Why? Well, because we love in them what God continues to love, which is their their the gift of life, their their participation in God's being all the while hating what it is or how it is that the person has turned themselves, you know, from God. This exists, I mean, this applies all to also to Satan. <laughs> you know, they're they're in a sense, God loves in Satan what is good in him. And what is good is that he is, you know, that that, that he shares and participates in God's being. Uh, but what God hates in him uh, is that for which he Satan justly suffers punishment. And it's the way in which uh, Satan turns from God, turns his heart you know, from the offer of, of beatitude, seeking instead to, to find his final and perfect happiness in himself and not, not in God. Uh, I mean, that, that, it, that turning away itself is its own punishment, which, you know, for the angel is, is everlasting, uh, you know, uh, and in an immediate instantaneous kind of way. So, um, so that's how, oh yeah, the, a thick, good, well, thick metaphysical understanding of the good, you know, helps us to to understand properly these aspects of of the moral life. Thank you for that, Father. Um, the next question, I I think I'm going to group two other questions again. Um, mm -hmm. So we talk of the will, and it inclines to the good, and that's mm -hmm. the purpose of the the will. That's um, right. And so it's, it's natural operation. Yeah. So how can the will choose things that are evil or not good uh, if it's contrary to what it's designed for? And right. as an extension, does that make hell a place where somebody is very much against their own being because they've, they've chosen against God? And so is it like a, a complete mm -hmm. inversion of, of what being is supposed to be? Right. So this is, uh, I think after tomorrow's talk, uh, you'll be in a better position to answer this question uh, on, on your own, because it's really what's the answer to that question lies in how we understand truth and goodness to relate to each other, but also intellect and will, you know, so will its only operation is to, to be stirred by the good. The thing is, though, uh, will of its own has no capacity to discover the will. It's it's it is moved by the good that's presented to it. How and by what? Well, by intellect. Uh, so, insofar as by intellect we come to make right judgments about things, this is good, this is evil. You know, uh, you know, justice, good. Like rendering another his due, paying debts, good. Uh, murder. You know, evil. We make you know right judgments and estimations about those things. Uh, in the thick of action, as we're pursuing the good, we can make errors about that. Why? Well, because we're stirred by some passion or some kind of self-interest that prompts us to make a bad judgment about things. That in certain circumstances, it can appear to someone that murder is not evil in itself, or even while remaining evil in itself, is good for me right now. And it's under that aspect of good, then, because of some erroneous judgment, that will is then presented something as good that that it can incline to. Uh, so that that's how it is that that we can come to choose any kind of sin freely, even uh, because in a sense we lie to ourselves as to the the goodness of it. Even if we recognize it's evil, we lie to ourselves that it's good for us here and now. That somehow I am so special and this situation is so special that I can apply evil, you know, in some kind of good way. Uh, and uh, and that's, I mean, it's essentially the rebellion of the first sin. It's the rebellion that, that, that lies at the root of every sin. Uh, we rebel against kind of the, the order of things, the nature of things, as God has established them to be, uh, to suit our own ends. Uh, and therefore, that's how it is that, for Aquinas, at least on his account, how we can fall into error 
uh, and and sin. Um, so hell doesn't represent uh, kind of the inversion of reality. No, it's it's actually just a manifestation of what's due to the one who purposefully, willfully, and unrepentantly, you know, remains in this state of error. Uh, you know, who chooses it for himself as as opposed to recognizing one's error uh, and in humility, you know, turning back to to truth and and to goodness. Uh, Aquinas has a great observation about, um, you know, when they, uh, well, kind of as a, as, as a demonstration of this, um, the saints in heaven, when they look upon the, the souls in hell, they don't kind of shudder in horror, you know, as if, um, uh, as you say, you know, reality is overturned or denied. No, the Aquinas says the, the saints in a way rejoice <laughs> when they see uh, the souls in hell, not because they take delight in their torments, but because they see that the justice of God uh, is being witnessed to by the suffering uh, of those in hell. So that can be lamentation over the personal state of those, but a, but a kind of delight in the fact that uh, that God's order uh, and his goodness and his truth are, are, are being witnessed to even by the the damned in, in in hell takes a while to kind of you know come to terms with that that's not an easy thing <laughs> to hear right away because we're not conditioned to think uh perhaps in, in that way but i think uh, if you reflect on the on the mystery long enough you you come to see what aquinas is trying to get at there thank you for that father um this might be uh Bit of an odd question, but what is the moral character of choosing a lesser good? So, for example, mm -hmm. you might, I might be walking to the center we have on university. I see that adoration is on. I have time right. to go to adoration, but I go downstairs and I play a game of pool instead or something. <laughs> um, right. I'm pretty sure pool, playing a game of pool isn't a sin, um, but mm -hmm. what is the moral character or what occurs there within the soul right um, at a technical level for me to choose something that's a lesser good right so if we would have continued our discussion of the good one more point to make about the diffusion of good is that different goods diffuse their goodness in different ways which is to say some goods are more flush with goodness and are thus better because they extend their goodness to more things and more effects than others and this is how we distinguish the particular good from the common good, for example, uh, you know, particular goods extend their goodness and can be enjoyed by one or only a very limited number of beneficiaries. Common goods, uh, because they're objectively greater, higher causes, they extend their goodness and therefore extend their reach uh, and their attraction to not only more, let's say, people, uh, but but greater kinds of, uh, of things. Um, so among goods, we can talk about better and lesser adoration playing pool, you know, uh, adoration, you're putting yourself there and you're worshiping, uh, you know, the infinite God. Uh, pool uh, can be enjoyed by, you know, very few people, basically the people playing that game at that time and maybe, you know, small gathering, you know, who are, who are watching it uh, and enjoying it. It's important uh, to note that, yes, while recognizing that uh, some goods are always going to be better than others, it's not the case that we always have to choose the better good over, over the lower good. Why? Well, because we need all the goods. <laughs> you know, uh, it's not just the better goods that, that, that lend to our, our perfection and happiness. It's all of them. Uh, and that for the human creature, especially as we remain pilgrims on this earth, that that includes uh, physical goods, material goods, sensate goods. Uh, you know, for the person who, let's say, for example, just only wants to choose the higher goods, let's say, who just dedicates himself to contemplation, the contemplation of truth, which is the highest of, of the intellectual activities. Um, you know, unless he stops that at certain points of the day and eats, uh, you know, he's not going to be contemplating all that long. Or will he be contemplating all that well? 
because you'll be starving <laughs> and quite distracted, you know, in 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 trying to to contemplate. So part of you know what's part of the the great mystery and really dignity of human life is that uh, we organize our lives and we organize the pursuit of the good in such a way as that we achieve the right balance, you know, among the, the enjoyment of the, the higher and lower goods, because uh, we need them all. But in prudence, what we do then is orient the pursuit of our of the lower imperfect goods towards the enjoyment of the higher, more perfect goods. So, for example, in the example that you gave, um, yeah, uh, is it better objectively to go to adoration than to play pool? Yes. Uh, but let's say the person you want to play pool with is, uh, you know, a friend that you haven't seen, you know, in two years and he's only in town for a day, you know. Uh, and so there's there's a good a friendship there that, that can be had. Uh, and in fact, it may be more immediate. Uh, maybe a more immediate need to see that friend, you know, to to live in, in to share and, and deepen that friendship. There's a more immediacy to that, uh, which then can be oriented to, you know, uh, you know, your adoration of God or the time of adoration, which, you know, that's something that you can then bring, you know, to prayer as is you know something to be to be thankful for. So it's I. I think sometimes we can ask the question in the wrong way where we're pitting lower goods against higher ones or choosing higher ones to the exclusion of lower ones. Whereas the real challenge of the real mystery of life uh, in growing in virtue is in prudence. How do we align the pursuit of the lower with the higher and orient the enjoyment of the lower, you know, to the higher to make sure that, that, uh, you know, all of our needs and all of our potencies are are actualized, but in their proper order, you know, in and in 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 relating, you know, the goods one to another. And that's one of the insights I think that Aquinas has. I mean, he sees as a real mark of m maturity in the human creature is we desire things, or that our appetite is stirred by the good according to how goods are in themselves. In other words, how higher and lower goods relate to each other in reality, that should be mirrored in how it is that, that we desire them. So that we do desire higher goods more than we desire lower ones. But it, that's not to the exclusion of any desire for lower ones. We just desire the lower ones in and how they're related to the higher ones. So that when that relation in reality is mirrored and manifest in our own appetite in the own stirring of, of our will for Aquinas. that that's that's the sign of virtue that's that's the mature human creature uh, who reflects interiorly in appetite how it is that that goods are organized and, and structured by god in, in reality well thank you very much father um unfortunately we've uh, we've hit the one hour mark and um i'm <laughs> We're extremely grateful for you waking up. Oh, my pleasure. For us and for helping organize this collaboration with the Thomistic Institute. Uh, your, your speech was in, extremely enlightening and very, very clear, a uh, very clear oh, articulation of, of difficult concepts. Um, uh, and I'd, I'd like to thank you again for waking up. So my early. pleasure. Yeah, and oh, thank you. hopefully I'm looking out. I'm looking out the window here, and I I see the first uh, you know rays of of, of sunshine. The lights, <laughs> the sun is just starting to rise. So yes, it's good uh, to begin this day with you. Yes, I hope it was a it was a good start for the day for you. And um, as a reminder to everybody else, Father Dominic Leg will be speaking on the topic of truth tomorrow night at nine p.m. again for us. Uh, and yes, that's all for tonight's talk. Uh, thank you once more, Father. Thank you.